0: There we go, well, thank you guys so much for coming out here tonight i um this is I think my first time ever in Owensboro, Kentucky, and I just got done eating at moonlight barbecue i'm like I can feel like my lungs being compressed against the sides of my ri- like I can just that that those two pieces of pie after the like three plates I think that's what finally. Put me over the edge and normally like i'm kind of a big eater like i was telling telling my buddy rob here uh when i was 12 i once ate 14 pieces of pizza at a pizza buffet and and he and and i said my only limitation in eating pizza is just my jaw gives out and he goes what do you have tmj or something i'm like No, I have a perfectly healthy jaw, like my jaw is totally normal just that I am capable of eating pizza until a a normal healthy adult man jaw just is like no more, we can't do this anymore. So I'm going to tell you guys tonight the story of how I became a writer. And um, how, how many of you guys have met a published author before? Okay. So most of you, you you haven't, most of you have. Here's, here's why I tell this story though, every time I get a chance, every time they put a microphone in my hand, because I didn't meet a published author until I was 33 years old. And so the consequence of that was I didn't know what kind of people wrote books. So I was a book lover as a kid. I love libraries. My mom would take me to the library. She would um, leave me at the library with a quarter for the pay phone to call her when I was done because she couldn't hang for the amount of time I was willing to stay at the library. I always have to explain what a payphone is, by the way, when I talk to high schoolers. You know, there used to be these cell phones, they were attached to walls, you had to put money in them. And by the way, there used to be this thing called money that you would, you know. Um, so I, I absolutely loved libraries as a kid, and I worshipped books, and I worshipped the people who wrote books, and the consequence of that is that you tend to put authors on a pedestal, and you tend to to start to form this idea in your mind of books sort of, uh, you know descending from ivory towers carried by teams of doves in baskets on silken threads. And you know, at the top of these ivory towers, there are people in tweed jackets and bow ties and they're typing up the books and putting them in the basket and sending go team of doves down to earth and take the books. So I didn't think that, writing books was something that people like me did so i grew up in this small town you know i used to have to ride my bike to the grocery store to read stephen king books because my mom wouldn't wouldn't let me have them in the house they were devil books, so uh, I don't know why she was taking me to the library where there were all those devil books, but uh, interestingly enough, though, she's become very, very cool as she's gotten older. Like, she's gone the reverse track where where people kind of tend to get a little more, like, persnickety and and closed off as, as they get older. She's gone the reverse, so she started as this very young, closed-minded person and has just gotten gradually more open-minded to the point where she reads my books and uh I've even sat beside her as she read the F word in my books. I was like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. But no. Anyway, I digress. Um, So I didn't think that writing books was something that people like me did. So when I got to be about 17 and I began to be hungry to create art, that basically left me with the choice of music. books which were the two things I loved and since books weren't something that people like me wrote it left me with music so I went out and bought a guitar and I taught myself how to play and I practiced for hours and hours a day until my fingers bled and my wrists ached and I got to be decent at the guitar and so I moved to Nashville Tennessee Music City USA and i uh started playing shows in nashville and put a band together and uh it's actually how i know these guys here the the boken family they used to come see me play when i would uh play in bowling green kentucky so i put this band together and we started playing out and we were playing shows we were we were having a great time we were meeting cool people we were recording music that we we liked we were uh um writing songs we were getting you know some nice press and attention we were having a really really good time and that was the dream to be a professional musician that's what i wanted to do with my life so so i do that all through my 20s things are going great we're just having a blast all through my 20s so then i hit age 30 right and and i'm laying in bed one night i have one of those epiphanies i don't know if you guys have ever had one of those just Epiphanies out of the blue where you're just in the shower, just walking down the street and the universe opens its windows to you and allows you to appreciate some great truth that you've never been able to appreciate before. So I'm lying in bed one night drifting off to sleep and I have this epiphany, which is this. Um, very few people seem to make it big in music after age 30. Okay, there seems to be kind of this cutoff where you have to get your foot in the door. Now, you can be over 30 and be huge in music. I mean, Steven Tyler is, I think, 97 or 98, something like that. Um, uh, yeah, I think he, yeah, I think he just might be immortal. Um, but and so he's still making music and it's fine, but he got in the door before he was 30. He was wearing, you know um, 19 scarves on a stage when he was, you know, 21 and 22 So you got to make it in the door before You're 30 or you probably won't make it big as a musician That's just kind of the the hard truth of, of the music business and I had this realization in tandem with another realization, which was that I was thirty and I hadn't yet made it big in music, which might be a problem, based on the other observation I would just made. Well, um, but but the thing is, I'm not a quitter, right? Yeah, well, you know, quitters never win, and winners never quit, or something like that. So. Um, I decided that I was going to be the one who made it big in music after age 30. I wasn't going to give up. I was going to be that inspirational story. So I keep plugging away until I'm uh, 33. And that's when the realization really sets in that this is not going to happen. Sometimes your dreams, uh, they they will die. Sometimes your dreams will die. They will shrivel on the vine. They will fall to the ground and be trampled underfoot. Anyway, thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's been... I really let that, I really play that bit out when I speak for high schools. Like, I, I walk off stage, like, I watch the teachers and librarians who brought me in, just utterly mortified, like, we're going to lose our jobs over this. Um, I really play the bit out. One of these days, I am going to actually commit to it, and I'm just going to walk off, and I'm going to leave and not come back. Um, but I will have to be uh, treated very poorly at the school for that to happen. Uh, okay. Uh, where was I uh, dead dreams yes so uh, so here I am I'm in my thirties I've got this basket full of dead dreams and uh, so I go to the place where dreams go to die, which is law school and I get a law degree uh, and i I start practicing law I become a lawyer I'm become a prosecutor for the state of Tennessee, so I'm prosecuting murderers and rapists and child molesters and you you name it if it's Bad and evil, and you're victimizing somebody. Then I would deal with it. So I'm I'm doing that job, and it's 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 interesting. It's fun. It feels good to do. Um, but I haven't quite shaken that dream. That dream, which was once a bright fire, has burned down to this little single glowing ember, and so I decided to take this little glowing ember and pass it on to somebody who can stoke it back into a bright flame again. So I start volunteering at a music camp for teenagers called Tennessee Teen Rock Camp, and there's a sister organization called Southern Girls Rock Camp, and what we do, we bring in teenagers uh, during the summer, we sit them down on a Monday morning, we say, okay, what instrument do you want to play? And they tell us guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, you know, rock band instruments. And um, from then until Friday, every day, 9 to 5, they are having instrument instruction. I used to teach guitar at these camps. They are learning how to play in a band. They're learning how to make T-shirts. They're learning how to fix a guitar amp. They're learning how to book a tour. They're learning how to, you know, uh, record themselves. Everything you need to know to be a DIY rock musician they are learning how to do at this camp. And at the end of the week, uh, on Saturday, we put them up on stage in one of Nashville's big venues where storied musicians have played. And these kids perform in front of hundreds of people who have paid to see them play. Full lights, sound, everything. It is a rock concert and these kids are playing in it. Some of these kids have never touched a musical instrument before this week. So we, we don't turn any kids away. Any kid who wants to come can come. We, we find the money for them. We have scholarships. Um, so we get a lot of kids who have never touched a musical instrument before. And by the end of the week, they're on stage with a band playing a musical instrument that they touched for the first time on a Monday. So as you might be able to imagine, That's a magical experience to watch. That's a magical transformation to watch. To see the the change that art brings about in these kids. And I would be so moved seeing these kids up on stage doing this and, and the love that they had for their music. And I realized that I love the way young adults love the art that they love. There is something really, really special about the connection that young adults forge with the art that they love it defines them in a way that and and maybe this is not true of the kind of people who will come to a library on a six thirty on a tuesday night and see an author talk but it defines them in a way that it, it most adults do not allow themselves to be defined by art it defines their identities um, They let themselves feel things when they consume art. They let themselves be vulnerable to art. They allow themselves to be changed and moved by art. And so it made me want to make art for teenagers. But now here's the problem I've got, okay? You may be a step ahead of me on this one. I have devoted my life to the art of music. That's all I know how to do. I've devoted everything to that, hours and hours. It takes a long time to build craft and to get good at art. So that's the art I know how to do. But not only am I too old to make it big in the music industry in general, I am far too old to make it in the music industry, making the kind of music that gets marketed to young adults. I can't do it. I just can't. Nobody, um, is looking for the next, uh, 36 year old dude for their, uh, for their band, okay? Um, and besides that, I don't know how to make the kind of music that gets marketed to teenagers. Uh, the Boken family can attest, I don't make pop music. I make weird, dark, scary, heavy music for Southern weirdos who know a lot about snake handling. That's the kind of music I make, and that's not the kind of music that makes it onto pop radio. So what, oh, that's not gonna work. What am I to do? Well, I have two choices. The first is that I can simply give up on yet another dream and just be hungry because sometimes um, in life, you don't get to do the things you want to do and you have to just be hungry. So that's option A, is I can just live and die with hunger. Option B is I can try at age, I get my timeline messed up, 35, something like that, age 35, closer to 40 than 20, I can try at that age to turn my creative life upside down and reinvent myself while maintaining a job, a family, responsibilities, while just being more tired all the time than I was when I was 20. I can't stay up past 10.45 p.m. anymore, and I'm looking at turning my creative life upside down to do it. But I decided to go for option B. If I had chosen option A, there wouldn't, really wouldn't be much point to me standing here with a microphone in hand. This would be a very short presentation. So, anyway, I decided not to do it. Thanks for coming, everybody. Um, I chose option B. I decided to try to write a book for young adults because I saw that there was this big category of books called young adult books. And I thought, you know, I bet they market young adult books to young adults. I bet. Young adults read young adult books. So I think to myself, that's what I'm going to try to do. Because the publishing industry is more forgiving of age. Toni Morrison published her first book when she was 39. Not comparing myself to Toni Morrison, by the way. Just saying. Um, Norman MacLean wrote A River Runs Through It when he was, I think, 72 years old. So you can, it's not like music. It's different. You can publish a book. A little bit later in life than you can be a big musician so I decided to try to write a book for young adults now what had changed since the time that I was a kid and the books came from the ivory towers was I now the sort of person who lived in an ivory tower with a team of doves at my beck and call no I wasn't here's what had changed thing number one that had changed I was doing a lot of writing in my day job, and I was becoming confident in my writing. So um, being a prosecutor, I had to tell stories, and I didn't get to invent my facts. My facts would come to me in a box, and I would have to weave those facts into a compelling narrative for the court to consume. Um, But I was doing that on a regular basis, and I was getting pretty good at it, and I felt good about my ability to write, and I was getting a lot of positive feedback on my writing. And I thought, you know, if I can write A compelling story for judges to consume maybe I can write a compelling story for young adults to consume so that's the first thing that fell into place the second thing that fell into place was I met my first published author it was a friend of mine she actually worked uh, at a small rural library in North Carolina probably a little bit bigger than this room and she was working when we met she was working on a young adult manuscript And she would tell me about it she'd say i'm gonna try to publish this manuscript i'm writing and i would play the good friend and i would smile and nod and oh you're gonna publish that book of course you will and the meantime i'm thinking no you're not going to publish that book because you don't live in an ivory tower you are down here on earth hanging out with garbage like me so you're not going to be publishing a book no Well, she didn't get that memo that people like us don't publish books. So she finishes this manuscript and she sends it off to this big-time literary agent, who also didn't get the memo that people like us don't publish books because this literary agent loved her manuscript and said, I want to represent you. So this literary agent takes her book to a publisher who did not get the memo that people like us don't publish books, and this publisher published her book to hundreds of thousands of adoring readers who did not get the memo that people like us don't publish books. And so my friend becomes a New York Times best-selling young adult author, and I watched this happen in real time. So that's the second thing that fell into place was I thought, you know, people tend to hang out with people who are like them, right? So if she's hanging out with me, maybe that means that I'm a writer and I just don't know it yet. Now, the third thing that fell into place, and this one is the most important one, if you've ever thought about doing anything creative, if you've ever thought about taking that risk, here's the one I want you to remember. I was no longer afraid to fail, because I had failed already. I had a failed creative career behind me in music, and it was fine. It was fine, nobody cared. Nobody is keeping track of your failures. There's no great tally that anyone's keeping a, 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 of your failures and if, if they are, well then they're a failure because that's a weird thing to do. Um, so I was no longer afraid to fail. It's not that scary. Once you do it, once you just get it behind you, once you see that it's something that you survive and overcome and, and live to fight another day. So I thought, you know what? I'll try to write a young adult book and if it fails, I'm no worse off. I'm already a big failure of a musician. Who cares? Nobody cares. So I'm going to try to write this book and if I fail, I fail. I'll move on. I'll take up cross-stitch. I'll be a failure of a cross-stitcher. I will uh, take up juggling. I'll be a failure of a juggler, you know. Uh, do the chainsaw juggling. Cut off my hand. Ooh, oops. Um, that might be a little bit more of a lasting failure, actually, now that I say it out loud. But um, but the point is, I was no longer afraid to fail. So I decided to just do it. Decide to write a young adult book. So, um... I've got all these perfectly good stories in the form of songs that I had written. So I go back to my songwriting catalog, and I open up the trunk, and I dust off a couple of songs. And I think, this, there might be a story here greater than the one I told in the three or four minutes of the song. There may be more to this. So I blow the dust off the songs, and I've got two of them that I'm looking at. And I can't decide which one I want to write a book about. And I think to myself, you know what? No one's going to read this book. I might as well have fun, so I take both songs, I jam them together, stick them in the same book, and I say I'm going to figure out the relationship between these two songs as I write, and it's not really going to matter much because no one will see it. All right, so now I've got an idea for a book. Now I need characters for a book. So uh, I, I, I think what makes me turn pages. In a book. What makes me turn pages? What makes me hit play next on Netflix on a series? Uh, it's characters who fascinate me. It's people who I want to get to know. It's people who I want to live with, whose lives I want to inhabit. So I think about the types of people who fascinate me. And at that time, uh, I was fascinated by kids who struggled with the faith that they grew up in and who maybe took something valuable from that faith, like a like they learned how to play music in their church, and that was valuable to them because it gave them something to cling to. It gave them an identity, but the rest wasn't really for them. So I was fascinated with that kind of kid, and I thought that would make a good character in a story. But I was also fascinated with another kind of kid, which is the internet famous kid, which is a phenomenon that didn't exist. When I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, there was no such thing as an internet famous teenager. There was, um, the town, f- town wide famous teenager, which you only got to be by being a jackass. But, um, but there was no such thing as the internet famous teenager. And it was incredible to me that, that you could be a teenager and reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people with your voice. And that struck me as a remarkable facet of this world we live in now. So I wanted to write a book about an internet-famous teenager. But I also wanted to write a book about a very specific kind of person who I had encountered in my life and who had stuck with me. It is a type of person who I might best describe as a redneck wizard. And let me explain what I mean by that. When I was in college, I worked at a bookstore, and there were a couple of these guys who would come in at around six o'clock at night when, you know, they'd get off work and they'd come in. They'd come in with, you know, they wearing work clothes, construction site clothes. They'd have drywall mud on their clothes and regular mud and paint and just dirt, and they just... They looked like they'd been working outside and working hard. And so they would go over to the fantasy section, and they would just go like that with these big bare paw hands and grab a big stack of Dragonlance novels. That was the big thing when I was working at this bookstore, Dragonlance novels. I'm seeing some nods in this audience. So they'd grab a big stack of those, and they'd come up and just plunk, plop it down on the counter. And they'd have 10, 11 books there. And they'd be like, well, there's my reading for the week. And I, you know, ha ha ha, funny, good joke, good joke. You're reading two books a night. That's funny. We all love to read, ha ha, books. Um, but they'd be like, and, no, I'm not kidding. This is, this is my reading for the week. This is my life. This is what I do. I work, I come here, I buy books, I go home, I read them until I fall asleep, I wake up, rinse and repeat. So I wanted to get to know that person. I wanted to get to know the, the inner life of that very specific person. So I wanted to write that character. So I couldn't decide which one of these characters I wanted to write the book about So i said why choose nobody's going to read this book i'm just going to mush them all together i'm going to throw them all in the same book because this book's going to be set in the rural south it's a place i know it's a place i love Uh, it's going to be set in the rural south these kids are all going to be misfits because i'm not going to write a book that's not about misfits i love misfits i was a misfit growing up and when you grow up in the rural south and you're a misfit, you don't get to choose your other misfits. You get thrown in with the other misfits. It's not like if you live in a big city where you get to hang... All the anime misfits get to hang out with all the other anime misfits. No! In, in, In rural South, heavy metal misfit hangs out with skateboarding misfit, hangs out with Harry Potter misfit, hangs out with collects bugs in a jar misfit. You don't get to choose. So, they're going to have to hang out with each other. So, that solves that problem. So, now I've got characters and I've got a story and I go to write this book and I realize I don't have the first clue how to write a novel. I've never had a creative writing class in my life. Um, in fact, I've taught more creative, I will teach more creative writing classes within the next 48 hours than I have had in my life. So. I didn't know how to write a novel, so I thought, you know, the best way to do this is going to be to cheat. And the way I'm gonna cheat is to let my characters write this book for me. Because I could not sit down across from any one of you guys and say to you, let me tell you your story. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you where you've been, where you're going, who you love, who loves you, what you've overcome, what you need to overcome, all of those things that make you a a story embodied in a human being. I can't tell you that about yourself. What I could do is sit across from you and listen as you told me those things about yourself and I could write them down and then that becomes a story. So if I know these fictional characters as well as I know real people, then I can just listen as they tell me their story and write it down. So that's what I do. I spend three or four months with these characters in my head, just thinking about them, just letting myself hear their voices when my mind goes quiet. And by the end of that three or four months, I knew them very, very well. So I go to write the book. And I realize I don't have time to write a book because, oh, right, I've got a full-time job. I don't have time to sit in a gazebo by a lake and watch the sunlight dapple the water and write the great American novel while I, you know, sip my bourbon and smoke my pipe. I, I don't have that luxury available to me. So what am I gonna do? Well, one day uh, I, I commute to work by bus. I take the bus into downtown Nashville. So one day I get on the bus and I pull out my iPhone and I open up a Google document and I entitle it The Serpent King, which is what I'm going to title my book. And I start typing all the way into the office with my right thumb. Ba-ba-da-ba-ba. And I get to work, put my phone away, get down to business, work till lunchtime, pull my phone back out, start typing again. Lunchtime gets over. I put my phone away, work till the end of the day, get back on the bus, and I start typing again. I get home, spend a little time with my son, put him to bed, uh, then I get my laptop back out, and I continue the work. that's, after 25 days, how I write the first draft of this book called The Serpent King. So, long story short, um, I give this book to a friend of mine to read and critique for me, because that's how you get to be a better writer, is you let friends who you trust read and critique your work. And she had a literary agent. And she said i think my agent would like this book do you mind if i pass it along to him and i say no that would be wonderful so she passes it along to 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 her agent and he says i love this book i want to represent you i want to try to sell this book to a publisher i say great so he takes it around to publishers and um lo and behold there are seven publishers who are interested in this weird book about a snake hand a kid from a snake handling church I did not expect that to happen, but there are these editors who are interested, and in June of 2014, this book sells to Random House, and in March of 2016, this book comes out. Um, So that's The Serpent King. I get my phone back out, and I start typing again on the way into work, and uh, in March of 2017, my second book, called Goodbye Days, comes out. Get my phone back out, Start typing again on the way into work, and in February 2019, my third book, "Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee," comes out. So um, that's my story. Those are my books. Here, here is what here is what I want to leave you with. I, I started this talk talking about how I think how and why I think it's important to hear the stories of how writers become writers because it's there's there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing that is beyond your grasp uh, in in doing this. Here are the things you need to, to write books to do exactly what I do, okay? You need no more or less than this, okay? The first thing is you have to have a story to tell, which is easy. All of you have that. All of you have a story to tell. All of you have a point of view. You acquire said story and point of view by moving through the world and gathering experiences and observations and relationships and, and wounds and scars and joys. All of those things make you a story. They give you a point of view. So you have to have a story to tell and a point of view. Two, you have to be able to finish what you start because nobody wants to read a book that ends mid-sentence, three-fourths of the way through. So that is just not a good story. you got to be able to finish what you start. Number three is you have to be able to take criticism and not let it break you. So some people don't take enough criticism. They think their writing is perfect. Those people never improve as writers. They never get published. There's another kind of people who take the criticism too hard. They say, gosh, if I'm not getting this perfect on the first try, maybe writing books isn't for me, maybe I should be doing something else. And they let it break them, they they, they give up. And that's the other kind of person that never ends up publishing a book. The kind of person who ends up publishing a book is the kind of person who knows what criticisms to to, to let roll off them, because not every criticism is designed to be constructive. They're the people who take the criticisms that are meant to make them stronger, and they allow those criticisms to make them stronger. So if you have those three things, then you can do exactly what I do here. So thank you all so much for listening. We we got some time for questions. If you want to ask any questions, if you want to talk about anything, we can do that. Well, thank you. Um, one aspect that, you know, you know, Diller, is barely is full of, you know, some of the and snake handling, was that, how did you come up with that aspect of the story? Is that was the thought of obviously what the matter at all? So, um, s- struggling with matters of faith has been, has been a very real struggle in my own life. And so I know a lot about what it's like to grow up, you know, with with a lot of uh, strict religion. And I wanted to, I, I wanted to write about snake handling religion specifically because it is such an interesting take on faith to me that there are these concrete tests of faith that you can either fail or succeed at. If you pick up the serpent, you have succeeded at the test of faith. You have shown your faith. You have shown that you are a true disciple. If you don't take up the serpent, then you've shown that you don't have faith. And so I thought it would be interesting to write about faith in the backdrop of, of a religious tradition that has such concrete tests for who is faithful and who isn't. And um, also, you know, snakes function on an interesting metaphorical level. They shed their skins. They are poisonous. You know, they are kind of these uh, unthinking, unfeeling kind of uh malevolent forces in some ways. And so uh, you know, it, it just struck me as an as an interesting way to write a story. And it is a feature of the rural South. It is a feature of rural Tennessee, um, these churches. And so all of that kind of conspired to make me say, oh yeah, I think I want to write about this. And plus the the band that I played in, I had uh one of our bandmates was played in snake handling churches, and so was very familiar with that tradition and, and knew it well, and it was something that we incorporated into our music and the imagery of our music. Thank you for that question. I am. So all of my books correspond to a particular piece of pop culture that I'm obsessed with, or pieces of pop culture that I'm obsessed with. And this new book I'm working on now is my Dead Poet Society slash Goodwill Hunting slash Rushmore book. So I am obsessed with stories of geniuses. I'm obsessed with stories about, uh, private schools, prep schools, boarding schools, because it's so different from the way that I grew up. So I'm writing a story about these two kids from Appalachian, East Tennessee. Um, both have grown up pretty hard. You know, the opioid epidemic has, has struck Eastern Tennessee communities particularly hard, and it struck the lives of these two kids. One of these kids is a genius, and she makes an important scientific discovery, which attracts attention from all these elite schools up up in the Northeast, all these elite high schools. So they offer her a scholarship, and she will only accept the scholarship if they give one to her best friend as well. And because I'm not trying to write a book from the perspective of a genius, I have written the book from the perspective of the best friend, who is going to this prep school, basically, is this genius girl's comfort animal, more or less. Uh, I mean, they're friends, but he is there to, to, to bring her comfort and so she won't be so lonely. But, but he's got his own set of struggles. His grandfather's dying. Um, his mother died when he was young and left him with, with some lasting trauma. He, he just doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he fits. He doesn't know that he belongs in this world of, you know, all these rich kids. And he just feels out of place. And he discovers poetry as a way, as a, as a form of identity, as a way of working out the, the traumas and the things that, that he wants to say. So that's what I'm working on now. I am almost finished with the draft of it. So that one should be coming out in 2021. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so so for example, in in the Serpent King, we've got Dill's uh, kind of the main character, his mother, who is she does she she does what she thinks is right, but what she thinks is right isn't really right, and she's she's the kind of person who's very susceptible to kind of cult like thinking, and she's been drawn in by this sort of Cult leader sort of guy picture if you know if I could cast anyone in a movie adaptation of the serpent king I would resurrect David Koresh and have him play Dill's father like that's exactly Who I imagined as Dill's father is is a David Koresh type and so his mother was just very kind of um, Impressionable and they met when she was really young and so she's got all she's got is this very severe religion and this very severe religious tradition. And she truly believes that if she doesn't bring her son through adolescence in this religious tradition that he's just gonna be lost. And so, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very religious home. My parents were great parents and and uh, they are not like Dill's parents, but it gave me a perspective on what it would be like to grow up in that same religious home but with bad parents who who didn't love their children as much as they love God. So that's kind of how I wrote that character. Um, Lydia's father, who he's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. He's kind of like who I hope to be as a parent, who I want to be as a parent. So that's how I wrote uh, that character. And uh, Travis's parents, Travis's father is just awful. Just, uh, you know, I just thought, what is just kind of the absolute totem of toxic Southern masculinity? And that's Travis's father. And then his mother, who's kind of just, you know, doesn't really know how to to assert herself against it. It's just sort of this unstoppable force in her life, and she doesn't know what to do about it. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I based it a little bit on my own experiences, but a lot on observations, a lot on just imagining what certain things that I'd experience would be like, just a little bit of a twist. Was that part of what you wanted to express with the book, that not all, parents are not always writing, they shouldn't be, because it very much got Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, because I think, you know, I think kids need to have books that show parents making bad decisions and doing and saying the wrong things and just... Being bad parents, because there's a lot of kids out there with bad parents, and they need to see they're not alone, right? Absolutely. I have a need somebody who would make me read my Ooh, I love it when nothing I love more than teenagers who are forced to read my books. I love it. <laughs> Mine too. I, I was wondering, at what point when you were writing it did you decide that he was gonna it Like, as, from the very beginning, or did you... Yeah, know, I always that. knew. I always knew. I always know how my character's arcs are going to, to end up um, before I ever start a book. It's never a surprise to me. And what was, what was a surprise to me was the life he took on in the book. I didn't intend him to be as resonant as he has turned out to be for people. I thought that that character was such a niche interest of mine, such a niche fascination that, you know, it would kind of, people would just mostly not get it. But I get constantly people saying, I was Travis growing up, like that was me. In fact, here's a, here's a funny story. Um, so I based the town of Forestville and the Serpent King on Sparta, Tennessee. And in Sparta, Tennessee, there is actually a Riverbank books. There's this little bookstore in downtown Sparta, Tennessee that just kind of sells this weird smattering of new and used books and um, and so I after shortly after the Serpent King was published, I go in to Riverbank Books on my way back from Knoxville, and I'm just kind of browsing around and this big burly teenage kid comes in and starts talking with the store owner about Game of Thrones and I was dying I could not freaking believe what was happening right in front of my eyes because it is right out of the book um, so yeah that was, that was a lot of fun but anyway yeah I knew Travis was going to die from the very beginning I just, I just know that about characters it was, it was hard to write really hard to write Heart, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have been threatened with violence many times over that. In fact, the moment I knew that that this was going to be a book was. So my friend I was telling you about, the author friend, her husband's a great reader. He's a great, he gives great feedback. He's just a real sharp, smart guy. And I gave him the, the manuscript of The Serpent King to read, and I kind of forgot about it. And Like a month later, I just get a random text from him one morning, F you, dude. I'm like, whoa what are you talking about he goes you know what you did I'm like I don't know what I did and he goes Travis and I'm like oh you're reading my manuscript he's like why did you do that and that's when I knew I was like okay this this might this might happen this might be something well thank you that That was one instance where I kind of brought in my my day job at the time because i uh I would just see on a daily basis just the randomness and the senselessness of it i i'd had I got the idea for it from a case that I'd had where a kid in memphis was was shot he owned a landscaping business, and he would mow lawns and he was killed for a hundred and thirty six dollars and so yeah. Well, thank you. One of the aspects of like reading Serpent King that I was struck by, coming from a kind of small town myself, especially with Diller, is like the guilt and you feel all the pressure that some kids feel about leaving behind like the leaving behind something that's bad for something better than the same Right. Child. right like you feel like you can't win yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i mean uh so i do a lot of talks in rural areas for this reason and there's kids who just want desperately to get out but every everyone they love is in this town and they're going to stay there they're going to die there their parents their grandparents uh everybody everybody they love. And so there's this real tension between wanting to get out and see more of the world and, and see what possibilities it holds and, you know, finding their people. Um, And, and, but at the same time, loving this place in spite of all of its faults and flaws. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's referring to my third book, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. All right, you guys. Well, I want to thank you all so much for coming out tonight. It has been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you to the Davis County, Is am I pronouncing that right? Okay, I've been saying it, Davies, because there's many S's in <laughs> Davis County Library for having me. You guys are amazing and it has been a real honor to come out and talk to you tonight. Thank you.